Capital Allocators is brought to you by 10 East, an investment platform for sophisticated investors to access private markets. 10 East brings benefits of having your own family office without the cost and headaches of doing so. It's founded and led by Michael LaFell, former deputy executive managing member of Davidson Kempner. Michael and his investment team offer members the opportunity to co-invest by offering at their discretion. Michael and his team source, diligence, and commit material personal capital to each investment. The opportunities shared on the Tennis platform offer exposure to private credit, real estate, niche venture and private equity, and other idiosyncratic investments that typically aren't available through traditional channels. The principals have over a decade track record of investing in these types of exposures across more than 350 transactions. Post-investment, the Tennis team conducts ongoing monitoring and reporting, just as you'd expect from an institutional investment organization. I've known Michael for about a decade, and after becoming impressed by the quality of Tennis offerings, its research process, and high-quality investment team, I became an advisor to the organization and investor in multiple offerings. You can learn more and join me as a member at 10east.co. That's the number 10, east.co. I want to take a break in the action to tell you about NetSuite by Oracle, helping businesses accelerate growth and run better with a suite of ERP, financial, CRM, and e-commerce products. Here are three numbers for you to remember, 36,000, 25, and 1. 36,000 is the number of businesses that have been upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite turns 25 years old this year. That's 25 years helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need, all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free, at netsuite.com slash allocators. That's netsuite.com slash allocators to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash allocators. And now, back to the show. Hello, I'm Ted Seides, and this is Capital Allocators. This show is an open exploration of the people and process behind capital allocation. Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can join our mailing list and access premium content at CapitalAllocators.com. My guest on today's show is Shundran Thomas, the founder and managing partner of the Copia Group, a new private investment firm that provides capital solutions to lower middle market companies and drives social impact. Shundram was a past guest on the show while in his prior seat as president of Northern Trust Asset Management, a leading global investment manager with over $1.3 trillion in assets. That conversation is replayed in the feed. This time around, we pick up with Shundran's decision to leave Northern Trust, his mission at Copia, and transition from public company executive to budding entrepreneur. We discuss his plans for Copia across investment strategy, team building, capital raising, investment process, and social impact. 
We close with Chandran's vision for the next five years in his new venture. Before we get going, the new year is a wonderful time to reflect on the past and plan the future. There's almost a universal constant in our field of the desire to work hard and get better. Some of that comes from internal drive, and some requires the support and experience of others. On the latter, we're here to help. Sure, you can tune in every week and expect 80 hours of wisdom over the year. That's table stakes. If you want to go the extra mile, check out our one-day seminar, Capital Allocators University, where we teach important frameworks for senior allocator professionals to reach the next stage of their career. And in case you're wondering, yes, this is an explicit sales promotion. It's not something I do every day, but Hank told me it might help drive traffic. We have a little side bet on that, so feel free to weigh in. Check out the university tab on the website and join us on March 9th in New York City. Thanks so much for spreading the word about Capital Allocators University. Please enjoy my conversation with Chandran Thomas. Chandran, great to see you. Good to see you, Ted. Now, when you last came on the show a couple of years ago, we had this great conversation about diversity, and we're going to replay that in the feed. You were also sitting atop a very large asset manager, and I would love to hear about your decision to leave Northern Trust after a long time in the helm. First of all, I mean, I'll contextualize it by saying this. I had the privilege of spending 18 years at Northern Trust, had the opportunity to work in a number of great roles, spent 15 years in various executive roles in the asset management business and led corporate strategy before that. And what I always say to people, you know, when you're talking about your career, or your vocational journey, I mean, a lot of people talk about it like it's this perfect plan that you have. But in reality, it is path dependent. At the center of anything I do is a sense of calling or purpose. And so one of the things I've always said is, while we have a career plan, it has to fit in the context of your life plan. And so, you know, if you and I would have been speaking, say, maybe two or three years before I made this decision, I don't know that I would have been able to say to you explicitly, this is the thing that I'm going to do. What would have been 100% consistent is the things that the mission of this entails were things that I was actively focused on and moving towards. I had a unique experience at Northern Trust where I was able to work on starting a number of initiatives and even build businesses within the firm. I've owned my own business, I've written books. So I've always been entrepreneur in that regard. So I love building things. Two of the things I became really passionate about is just increasingly focused on how can we use the power of business to deliver more societal good. I really think that's the greatest and highest calling of business. It's not just about producing profits. And then thinking about how do we truly advance our business practices such that we are the most inclusive, not only industry we can be, but across all our industries. And as I looked at those things more and more, what came into view is this opportunity that I saw not only in investment management, but particularly in the private markets. And it was a sense of purpose and calling. And so that's the process that moved me toward that. And, you know, as you get closer to something, sometimes the calling, as it were, becomes clearer. And there was a moment that I came to and I said, this is what I feel like I'm really supposed to be doing in this next season of life. Was there a catalytic moment that created the timing of your decision of when to do it? So there wasn't a catalytic moment. What I would describe it as, it was, you just got to a tipping point. 
I was in the role, my last role, where I joined the management group and I was leading the asset management business at Northern Trust for five years. So first of all, just from a career standpoint, there's kind of a cycle you go through. You know, as you move through about five years or so, you're usually looking at directionally some sort of change, whether it's an evolution of your role and things like that. So I think for all of us, there's sort of a natural clock where you're thinking about how do you continue to grow and evolve. All of us had experienced a number of things that were pretty unique over the previous years. If you think about what we'd experienced during the pandemic, that just was a remarkable and unique period. And I think one of the things I try to be reflective but I'd like to say all of us were reflecting more, not just on career and life. You had seminal moments like what happened uh, with George Floyd. And at all those points, for me, it was stretching me, growing my personal and professional development, my leadership capacity. Also thinking about how can I do more with respect to the things that are really important to me? How can I have the most significant impact. I think, you know, being nearly 30 years into my career, you do start thinking about those thoughts. Uh, you move past thinking about, can I find a good job or can I do well financially? To thinking about how do you impact and help the most people? What is the legacy, so to speak, going to be when you look back over your career, particularly if you have uh, gas left in the tank and, and a runway ahead of you to affect those things? One of the things that probably came out of your period of reflection was this couple of letters that you wrote while sitting in the seat to effectively corporate America about some of these important aspects of purpose and mission. I'd love to hear a little bit about both those letters and then what you found the impact of them was after sending them out. The one that was most picked up was the one that I wrote just after the George Floyd incident. But really, it was precipitated by the first open letter that I wrote, which actually occurred at the end of April. So you recall February of 2020, we start realizing there's a real issue here in terms of what we were seeing around the globe we were experiencing in the pandemic. It was a dramatic time for most companies because in businesses like ours, we all work together, virtually all the people in the office all the time. And you immediately go to an environment where the vast majority of people were now working 100% remote. Uh, you're trying to figure out how do you continue to lead a business at a global scale, literally going through a health and humanitarian crisis. What struck me is in the midst of all the conversation that was going on, there was not something that was being highlighted enough. And so the first open letter was about, from a leadership standpoint, the need for compassion. It started out as very personal. It was something that I had communicated first to professionals in the business that I was leading. I felt the need to, in a sense, demonstrate leadership from the standpoint that you have a platform. And one of your most powerful tools as a leader is your voice. I felt like at that time, I have an opportunity to share and maybe encourage other leaders. And I was surprised at how much that caught wind and took off. George Floyd happened a couple of months later. I don't know how any person, when you view something like that, cannot be affected or touched by that. Now, Ted, it f affected me in a more unique way because being an African-American, sitting at the post that I was in, a named executive for a public company, very few people have the opportunity or the privilege in, to sit in that seat. And I remember having the conversation even with my CEO because I wanted to be aligned, but I share it with him. I said, I have to say something. I can't occupy the space that I have. I can't have the lived experience that I've had. And a big part of what I was trying to do there was personalize it because oftentimes, you know, we see through these different prisms and it would be easy, depending on your experience in life, your socioeconomic standing, to write off, in a sense, what happened to George Floyd in different ways. But what I was able to do in that is share some personal experiences 
of my own. And that's not for many people an easy or a comfortable thing to do, but I think it allowed people to connect in a different way. And so over time, I wrote four different open letters. I was, to your point, surprised for sure, (laughs) but encouraged by the incredible and wide response that it got in the marketplace. While that wasn't so much the intent, it was really just to use my voice in a positive and a productive way. It certainly was encouraging. How did you think about the voice you have from being the executive in a large public company to the voice that you're going to build setting off on your own as an entrepreneur? You have to realize in different seasons, you may have a different kind of calling. And what I mean by that is there's a certain stage that you're on. Like if you're a person that occupies one of these big visible roles, say in a public company, there's just a certain almost microphone or even megaphone that comes with that. That may not be the same if you're running a private enterprise. It doesn't, however, mean that the impact is less. Sometimes you're speaking to different audiences. Sometimes you're communicating things in different ways. And so for me, part of the decision was, you know, I was leading a global investment business that focused on a lot of different public and private markets in areas around the globe. And this was an opportunity to say, I think that there is a dislocation in the private markets. We've got the greatest capital markets in the world in the United States, but we still don't have access to capital equitably. And we're far from inclusion. When when we look at markets like venture capital and you say less than 2% of that capital is allocated to uh, women in diverse owned firms, but women and ethnically diverse people make up 70% of the population and expanding, that's a huge disconnect. But we can solve for that. Sometimes I think that if you really want to have a significant impact, you've really got to focus. And so this was a decision to say, I want to focus on something in the private markets, want to focus on lower middle market firms. And I believe that the kind of principles that we're talking about, the values that we espouse, I think they will resonate there in thinking about how can your actions most importantly speak loudly, but also how you can use your voice to affect change in these marketplaces. There are certain buzzwords in the industry now. You hear about diversity and inclusion as DNI and ESG and impact. And you're talking about impact, about the impact that you want to have. How do you think about impact investing? Ted, we've known each other for some years now, and you know, I'm, I'm exacting about words or terms. And there are lots of things that are related, but they're not necessarily the same. So I had the privilege at Northern, we'd become one of the global leaders in sustainable investing. It was something we've been focused on for years. When I had the privilege of taking the helm as president, we made it one of our top strategic priorities. I mean, we got to the point of our 1.3 trillion at the time in assets, we had 170 billion just dedicated to uh, different sustainable investing strategies. Now, sustainable investing, while related to is a bit different than socially responsible investing, which while related to is a bit different than impact investing. The way that I define impact investing is sort of simply, you're looking or seeking to generate, yes, market financial returns, so competitive financial returns, but you're doing that while you're also looking to create positive either societal or environmental benefits. So in this regard, you'll hear people when they talk about impact investing, say that you're looking to maybe generate what they call the proverbial double bottom line. Now, there are a couple of things that are important. Impact investing, I like to say, by definition, is an affirmative approach. And what, I, what do I mean by that? 
If you think about some of the strategies that people associate, say, with sustainable investing or ESG, sometimes people focus on exclusionary strategies, uh, quote unquote, what we won't invest in or what we might exclude or what we might de-emphasize. If you think about impact investing, it's, it's different in the sense that you're targeting areas saying, where can we either have a positive outcome from an environmental standpoint or social standpoint by virtue of using the power of for-profit enterprises. One of the things, and I think that's a huge misnomer and it's disappointing to me, whether we talk about sustainable investing or impact investing, it's unfortunately become so politicized. And what's unfortunate in my mind is if you think about what great companies do by virtue of their missions and their business, whether you use that terminology or not, great companies have been doing these things for a long time and, and they are literally part and parcel with their mission. I think that the idea that you can have some enterprises, ours is one, where we're saying we're intentionally going to do that. And not only are we going to do it, we want to do it in a way where it's significant and we want to do it in a way that's transparent and measurable. That's how I think about it. And the last thing I would say is for us, we're particularly focusing on social impact because even if you think about impact investing, a lot of the emphasis and dollars globally have really focused on the environmental side of the equation and not as much on the social impact side. So Chandran, I know that everything you do comes with great intentionality. And as you begin to build this business, I would love to begin by understanding what values you've brought that you're espousing for this business. I think this is important because you you know I feel strongly about values in our household. We have personal values. We talk about our, our family values. Uh, among them, you know, faith, wisdom, competency, generosity. We have seven. But what I always say to people when you're forming an organization, or if you're part of the organization, what you're really trying to establish is shared values. So it's not something that is explicitly unique to you. All of us have different values or beliefs, but there are also places where they intersect. And I think one of the things that really great cultures do are find places where while we all may have individual or differing beliefs or values, what's the intersection of that? And how do we leverage that to drive our culture? And so as I both talked to advisors, as I was looking at founding this and, and was sharing some of my perspective, I, I got great inputs. I have a partner that I'm working with, Anthony Hoy, a wonderful gentleman who was the first person I reached out to um, in terms of saying, let's move forward with this. And then we've got people, although we haven't officially brought them on, we've, we've got a team we, we saw circled. And from a lot of those interactions, we came up with articulating what we call the copia creed. Now, one of the things is, I think it's helpful if you can make it easy for people to remember things. So it really is an acronym creed. And there are five values there. The first uh, maybe won't be shocking given what we were talking about in the earlier part of our conversation, but it's compassion. And I just think that's really important. And, and it's not in any way uh, counter to when you think about running great businesses. I think businesses are people powered. So I think at the heart of it, uh, being able to show kindness towards others and prioritizing this in your, your actions, especially in times of need, is important. We talk about resilience. I think that's important for any company. Uh, it's certainly important for us as a startup. Ted, I'd love to tell you when you start something new that there's a chorus of people uh, running around to assist you and support you. You certainly get some of that. But a lot of times what you get is all the people who question why you would do that or why that would work. And so there's a certain resilience that you have, especially if you're trying to do something outside of the norm. 
The other three quickly, we talk about excellence. We want to provide our best effort and highest quality to every stakeholder on every single occasion. We can control that. We talk about equity. That means a ton to us, promoting access to opportunity, first and foremost, but also ownership equity. I mean, because that's the greatest way that we can counteract things like wealth inequity. People talk about education and philanthropy and all those things while they're relevant. Let's be clear. The single biggest way that you change the differential of the wealth equation in this country or any developed nation is ownership equity, ownership in scalable, saleable businesses. And then the last thing is diversity. We really believe in it. We believe if you can leverage the power of unique perspectives and individual differences, not to separate us, that happens so much in this wonderful country that we live in, but use those different perspectives uh, and differences to learn and grow. Uh, We think those values, if we found our culture on that, if those are the low burning walls, we can build something great. You've seen so many different products across public and private markets. You're bringing to that your mission and purpose, this set of values. You mentioned lower middle market. You mentioned a focus on social. What did you decide of this wide world of asset management, what you wanted to focus on at Copia? We're investing in privately held companies. So the first thing you got to decide is, well, where are you going to fish? Because there is a wide range of privately held companies. So one of the observations from the business standpoint we had is just that there is increasingly a significant part of the market that is underserved. So when we refer to the lower middle market, we're not talking about startups. We're not uh, in the province, at least today, of venture capital startup. We're talking about established firms with growing scalable businesses. Think of them as having maybe 10 to 100 million in revenue positive EBITDA, but maybe the sweet spot is two to 20 million. The middle market is a huge segment, but the middle market, the capital solutions were principally provided by banks. They were usually too small on a relative basis to access in an efficient way, the public markets. And then you had relationships with banks. Now, over time, that has shifted dramatically for a variety of reasons, including regulatory. And so the private markets have stepped in. You think about the growth of private equity firms. You think about people providing solutions from equity all the way through credit. But here's what's also happened, Ted. If you look at the private markets, most of that focus is on the upper end of the middle market. And so you have these incredible businesses, Ted. I mean, 30, 40, $50 million in revenue, great business plans, great growth potential, who have trouble getting access to capital. This is, however, the fastest growing segment of the middle market. And by the way, if you also have an interest in focusing on economic inclusion, you're going to have a higher percentage of those firms be actually diverse owned or led on a relative basis. For that, you can imagine for what we wanted to accomplish from a mission standpoint, you know, that was a perfect place to focus. It provided tremendous opportunity from a business standpoint. It's underserved, so a value-added proposition should resonate well there. And it allows us to really hone in on this emphasis that we have on economic inclusion. Why did you decide to focus on the private markets instead of the public markets? I've spent a good deal of my career and a good deal of my focus on the public markets. Frankly, there were two things. One, the private markets have increasingly become a more and more significant influence in our economy, particularly as it pertains to entrepreneurship and access to capital. And the thing about access to capital is so relevant to me because of one, I think that we can unlock so much economic vitality if we do it more effectively. I'll give you an example. If you think about women-owned firms, women start firms at a significantly faster rate than their male counterparts. 
Women now make up nearly 60% of the college graduates in our country. So we don't have a problem with business formation with women. We don't have a problem with entrepreneurship, but we do have a problem with access to capital. And I want to be clear, that capital is both financial and social or relational capital. And so I said to myself, well, think about the unlock that you have there if we did that more effectively. And Ted, I think the opportunity set for that in the private markets, as I see it, in terms of really wanting to have that impact, is bigger today than things that I might have focused on in the public market. So it was, it was like, what's the biggest lever we can pull? <laughs> to, and so, so that was a big part of the motivation. How did you approach strategically thinking about what you were going to offer on the investor side? So I can frame it this way. In the private markets, when you're offering private placements, the reality is you can't talk about the products until you've closed fundraising. But here's what I can tell you. So one, we said we want to focus on the lower middle market. We said, two, we want to be able to provide debt and equity solutions. But if I tell you our bias in terms of our investment strategy, I think it'll point to certain things that will make sense. One, we like the opportunity to be able to provide what we would call tailored or bespoke financial solutions and therefore various strategic reasons uh, to accelerate growth. And they can include organic growth, acquisitions, recapitalizations. And so we want to be partnership capital. Very important, our investment strategies are tilted towards solutions that come in forms that limit dilution to existing equity owners. So think about things like credit. So that would be a natural one because there is potentially no dilution to existing equity owners there. But you can think along the way of a variety of things, whether it be preferred equity, uh, minority uh, equity interest, hybrid credit equity solutions. So you can think about over the arc of time, that's where we would want to focus. Our view is there's nothing inherently wrong, for example, with someone who is focusing on providing a middle market buyout equity, but that's not our focus. We say we want to be more partnership capital. Now, there's some philosophical reasons why we want to do that. We told you one of our values is equity. We want to expand equity ownership. When you look at women and minority-owned businesses, one of the unfortunate realities is not only do they have lesser access to capital, but they tend to have a lot less equity ownership in their businesses. If I were to use one uh, demographic, African-American business owners have on average about one-seventh of the equity in their businesses of their white male counterparts. So I want you to think about that, Ted. You go through all the hardship of taking the entrepreneurial plunge and you take on those risks. You build a great business. You still have trouble getting access to capital. But when you finally do get it, the nature and the forms in which it comes in, the kinds of deals that you have to take significantly limit your relative equity participation. So you can imagine why for us, the idea of being able to provide capital solutions wherever possible that are less dilutive or non-dilutive is very attractive. You've built a lot of teams. When you're starting from scratch, how have you framed out who you want to have on the team, how you're making sure that's all going to come together? One of the great things is you get to start from a blank sheet. So what do we frame out? There are the buckets that you want to touch. You're thinking about the technical expertise that people have. That's table stakes. If I think about Anthony, who's a partner, he has 30 years of experience in financial service in the investment management space. He spent 20 plus years now in the private investing space, focusing principally on private credit. So deep experience there. And it's comparable to some of the skills I have. You know, when he joined the business as a principal investor, 
you had to source the deals, <laughs> you had to do the underwriting, and you had to manage the portfolio. Today, it's much more you know, segregated. I had an advantage when I grew up in the business where I just got a lot of uh, unique experience early on. You know, I started out mostly doing high-yield research. So I got to understand and learn credit training. But at the same time, you were doing lots of deals. So you got to understand how to do deals and work in that context. What we find, but Anthony and I talk about this all the time, values and culture are so important. One of the things I would say I learned early on when I first became a manager, I focused very intently on the hard skills and you realize how important uh, those softer skills are. Most importantly, leadership capacity because it scales. And also people don't appreciate many times how much that EQ is. So you're looking for the right kind of hard skills and soft skills, but the third one has to be in place. And it's simply this, are they truly committed to, are they invested in, do they believe in the vision and the mission that you have? I know that seems like an obvious question, but I'm going to say this, Ted, I've learned through practical experience, most people really don't ask that or scan for that. And so what happens is many firms, especially large enterprises, wind up hiring extraordinarily talented people that are actually not truly committed to the vision and the mission. When you're at the stage of getting started, there's always the chicken and egg, right? You're, you're trying to find the investment <laughs> opportunities. You're trying to raise capital. How's that gone so far and have you tackled it? Let's say we're tackling it. It is an interesting dance and anybody who is particularly launched in this space knows usually versions of it. There's a version of this where people may launch out into the private investing business and in a sense, they're sponsored. They have a, a large anchor investment. Maybe they're rolling out of a shop. And so that's one version. Probably, though, the more common is you have some partners that decide to build a business. They've worked together or, or have a relationship in various ways. And they do the proverbial version of bootstrapping the business, which means they're going to commit the capital upfront that it takes to you know get the business out of start. They're going to go and focus on doing a couple of things. First and foremost, identifying those early prospective investors or LPs to build a foundation around the business. But for us, you're doing that while at the same time, you're beginning to source deals or transactions. So you're building your prospective investment pipeline. You're setting up all your relationships with the various vendors that you need because you know a lot of parts of the ecosystem are outsourced. And then you're also recruiting talent. And, and there's no perfect game plan of when those line up. What you usually will seek to do directionally is have a beat on what you're doing from a capital standpoint in terms of maybe going into an initial closing before you bring on heavy numbers of staff. Because again, Everything that happens before you have any um, uh, committed capital is just another check you write. And so I actually find solving complex problems really uh, engaging. It's sort of fun to, you know, constantly work on and think through. And, and I've lived, you know, different kind of entrepreneurial experiences in different ways. And so it's, it's always some, some complexity up front in terms of what you're solving for. But if you have the right focus and you build the right team, you absolutely can get there. As you've seen all these different approaches to investing in your time at Northern Trust, what best practices are you bringing across your investment process? We have a very intentional process that we lay out 
And at every stage, um, because we're an impact investment firm, we have both the investment side of the equation and how that integrates with the impact assessment. And it's all about, you know, doing things consistently, repeatedly, each and every time the right way. That's number one. The second thing is, though, being a learning organization, because you start out with a thesis and what any great manager or decision maker will tell you, you actually make many small decisions and a number of them won't be right. So people sort of pretend like they have these great answers, but that's not how it works. You're always course correcting. It's the ability to have an approach and a process that allows you to learn. Now, one of the things you have to do to do that is the interactions you create between uh, the colleagues and the people that you work with. And so if people are not in an environment that they feel psychologically safe, that they can bring their whole selves, that they can truly give their feedback, you will be robbed of some of the most important inputs you need. Because a lot of times what you need to know to make great investment decisions is not what you're reading uh, in the research and all those things. It's sitting in the heads and the hearts of the people around the table. It's not just the process that you put in place about how we do the analysis. It's the thoughtfulness you put into your practices of how you get people to bring the wood, to really share in exchange. And so you're, you're doing that course correction to get you to the best decisions. That's a part of it as well. And then the last thing I've always brought with me to any process is making sure that you have an outside in perspective. Every organization has the risk, no matter how big or small, of being too insular. Conducting yourselves in a way that you're rubbing up against other experts and innovators, other thinkers in the space, it's constantly challenging you such that you don't have this limited perspective set. And so those are some of the foundational things that we do to try and create an environment where we can have excellent investment results. So once you've laid that foundation, I'd love to walk through some of the aspects of what you're seeing so far in the investment process and maybe start at the top of the funnel. You talked about some of the metrics about the types of companies you're looking at. How are you going about narrowing the filter on the companies that you want to work with? So the first thing you do is like, say, for instance, if you looked at the lower middle market, broadly speaking, companies with revenue from $5 million to $100 million in the US are about 95,000 companies. So <laughs> you start here. One of the ways that we narrow the funnel are they scalable businesses? Because the reality is a lot of small to medium-sized businesses, they may be really good businesses for the entrepreneur, but some percentage of them are what we might refer to as lifestyle businesses. It's a great business. You can generate a nice return. It's not a business which either inherently by the nature of its product or service offering or the nature of the strategy that's being executed that lends itself to scaling. And again, because you're in the business of investing, investing is not that complicated. Whether you're looking for an equity return or even a debt return, you need the company to grow. And sometimes people say with debt, well, you don't really need the company to grow because they just have to pay back. And I challenge that a little bit because what happens is the business landscape is so dynamic. Usually when you're in the business, over time, some part of your business is going to change and contract. So the part that you're evolving or growing by definition is offsetting that, right? And so we start by ruling out any business that's not scalable. Second thing that we say is we're not industry specific, but we're not fully industry agnostic. And what I mean by that is some people say we have a fund and we just focused on this industry. What we do is we have some preferred industry segments and they are specifically related to where we have experience doing research, where we've done deals, where we have meaningful connections because we can have real value add and, and a better relative expertise and knowledge there. So some of those segments would include healthcare, consumer, 
manufacturing, particularly around logistics and supply chain. We like business services and we like financial services. So think about those as five sort of preferred segments. And when you look at, you know, our relative backgrounds and if you especially you look at Anthony and some of the team, right, this is places where literally they've been endless covering these sectors. And that's not just limited to us. So when we think about our executive network, when we think about our professional network, I mean, we have people that we engage with regularly and even um, we haven't put it officially in place, but we've soft circled our advisory uh, board. And so all of these are coalescing around areas where there's concentrated expertise. And then the last thing is we're looking for opportunity to drive social impact. So we have a proprietary framework that we developed uh, in partnership with Morningstar Sustainalytics. And there are five themes in that. Diversity, equity, inclusion is one of the themes. Workforce development, equal opportunities, health and wellness, and quality education. We're looking for the opportunity in one or more of those areas where these companies have an opportunity to drive social impact. How do you apply measurement to those five aspects of social impact? We have clear definitions for the framework, and then you have different objectives and they are measurable objectives. So if you were thinking about something like diversity, equity, inclusion, you can look at representation. You can look at it on different levels. You could look at it within the context of the company. You can look at it at the management level, uh, even at the governance level. You can look at things like pay equity. Um, and workforce development, again, these are measurable things you can do. You can look at the ability to create good paying jobs. You can look at it particularly as to the extent a company is doing it in targeted uh, underserved communities. Uh, you can look at creating um, longevity or job security. You can look at things like investment in training and development. So these are all just indicators that are objective, that are measurable. What people sometimes get confused about is when they think about impact, they say, well, are you just looking to invest in firms that are doing this great? And I say, first of all, it's a whole relative. We personally and collectively are all on journeys. So actually, there's not a, some necessarily a minimum proficiency that we say where a firm has to be when they start. What we're looking at is opportunities where they have, where they can drive significant contribution over time. And I think that's really important. How do you go about assessing management teams? There's no surrogate for investing in time. A lot of the upfront diligence for us once you have determined that there's enough there to really take a hard look at a prospective deal, for us, it's all about starting with the management team. And here's the kind of things that you're looking for. People talk about experience, but I think when they say experience, they think about it too narrowly. So we're looking at the experience that people may have related to the specific business that they may be running at that particular point in time, but we're looking at their experience over time, the kind of hard and soft skills that they've acquired that will contribute to moving the enterprise that they have forward. So it's a very holistic view of thinking about experience. And quite frankly, we prefer to really use more the term their expertise. So we have a, a more of a mosaic of how we think about that. Second thing that we look for is how transparent are they? When you're making an investment, right, no matter how much due diligence you have, there's a certain amount of information asymmetry. But if you're dealing with people that are very forthright, that are transparent, that are very balanced on talking about their business, that really know the business, where the strengths and the weaknesses of the business model are, that's something that we look for. We look for people who can demonstrate an experience of good business judgment. And that business judgment has to do with the decisions that they make with respect to the current business that they're running, 
will try to scan experiences before. That judgment also applies to the teams that they build and the people that they select. And sometimes with small or newer businesses, they actually don't have the full complement of the talent that they need to really scale the business. But that's actually fine if they understand and they're aware of that and they have a mindset that allow them. We also look for this. Do they really seek value in what we're trying to offer? These are people that oftentimes are extraordinary entrepreneurs, but they still need to be open-minded. And so are they open-minded such that the value add that we could prospectively bring, that they're not beyond the point, although they had a level of success of being coachable? The very last thing I would say that we try to test for as best as we can is just leadership capacity. That is the tiebreaker, right? Because when you have really great leadership, people will give those leaders an exceptional level of effort, more than you can ever pay the people for. And when you see that you have those things kind of working together, you can say, I I think we have a good management team here. How have you gone about setting up how you'll make investment decisions in Copia? So the way that we've set it up is that it would not just be Anthony and I. Inclusive of us, there will be four other senior level investors. So there are two things that we want to do. One, we will run our investment meeting such that everybody is engaged and gets to participate and we invite those perspectives. That's important because I think that you have an obligation making sure everybody transparently is seeing what you're doing and they have those opportunities to learn, but they often can bring perspectives that people will ignore to the table that are extraordinarily valuable. So we want that. Now with all of the senior investors, kind of the VPs and higher We want people that are literally working on deals and managing uh, the portfolio to have vested skin in the game. To do that, you have to create an environment where there's ownership around the transactions. Now, ultimately, there is a weight that the partners have because, you know, ultimately you have to be a steward of that capital, not only that you've invested, but the capital that you're investing on the behalf of others. But for any avoidance of doubt, our senior investment professionals make up the ultimate investment committee that will work together in concert to make decisions on investments or deals. In this newly created partnership, what are the things you will seek to integrate to make sure that the partnership functions well over time? As the managing partner, you know I have a significant responsibility, but it's not necessarily how people think about it. Because people think that if that's the role of the title, it means like you're making all the decisions. And it's actually not that at all, right? My role in large part is to do a couple of things. One, it's to empower the incredibly talented people that we have. Empowering means that you've got to create the kind of uh, environment. We talk about psychological safety. We talk about bringing their full perspectives and sharing those in engaging in ways. And I'm not afraid to say this. I like to coach hard. But people who want to be excellent and people that trust you and know you care about their well-being will allow you to coach hard. And by coaching hard, I'm not talking about some kind of rough persona. I'm saying pushing myself and our team every day to be our very best. Remember we talked about that value of excellence? Whether it's I did things academically or whether I played sports, I always benefited from good coaches and I liked being coached hard. For people who could see in me sometimes a level of capacity that I didn't know I had, but could help me find that next level of achievement. And so, but you get there not by being brusque or rough, you get there by building an atmosphere of trust. 
And so bringing those kind of things. Other subtle lessons I've learned, Ted, is just that as a leader, you have to know yourself, your own temperament. I'm a moderately expressed extrovert, but I'm an extrovert. If, if you know the Enneagram, I'm an eight, you know, I'm an ENTJ. Nobody's totally conflict averse, but conflict doesn't put me off that much. I have to think about though, how other people are different. And then I have to be very conscious of how I show up such that it doesn't crowd out how they need to show up. Those are the kind of like subtle things that you pick up over time and realizing how intentional you need to be to create the kind of environment where people can flourish. As you look out at this next five-year integral, what will success look like for Copia? So the first thing is a successful launch of uh, the business and the vision and the mission that we have. And that's not a throwaway thing. The second is we have a desire to truly build a truly scalable, diverse owned and led business. And so when we're looking back in five and 10 years, passing milestones where we don't necessarily have to be, quote unquote, the largest business, but we want to have a meaningful business. And that's going to um, be different ways we'll look at that, whether it be the assets under management we have, the impact that we're having, because that's very important to us. Two other very important things. We absolutely have the ambition of being an employer of choice. And so when we think about that, that is the respect and the reputation we will build in the marketplace. That's how we will measure ourselves by things like our employee engagement. So we expect to be at the very top of the industry on measures like that. So we won't just be something that we throw out out of our head. That's important to us. And then we want to be a partner of choice. So one of the ways that we'll measure um, our effectiveness and success Ted, we want to get to the point where when we're going out to look to invest in and with companies, that companies in the marketplace are saying, you know what, we actually want to work with the Copia Group, that they view us more than just as a financial sponsor, someone that can truly be additive to what they're trying to accomplish in their vision and mission, and someone that they'll want to work with again and again. If we're accomplishing those things across that spectrum, we will be a successful firm. Well, we're going to have to circle back in a, in a bit and see how all this goes. But until <laughs> then, I have a few closing questions that I didn't ask you the last time. Sure. What is your biggest investment pet peeve? One of my biggest investment pet peeves, and I, and I used to push hard on my investors all the time on this, it is the presumption that investors, whether it is the investing clients or the professional investors, always act rationally. It is the furthest thing from the truth. And the reason that's so important and such a pet peeve of mine, until you recognize that fallacy, you can't really be a great investor. We all are hopelessly biased. There are all kinds of things that inform how we view the world and how we view opportunities. And if we understand that and we understand the benefit of how we build processes that help mitigate our biases, help bring perspectives and things that we don't see help to see where sometimes we're literally systemically being irrational, right? We can actually become better investors. So that's like one of my pet peeves because people will be wholly convinced that everything is perfectly rational and that we're making all of our decisions based on empirical information, which in many times is like the farthest thing for the truth. Which two people have had the biggest impact on your professional life? First and foremost, without question, is my father. And to be fair, you know, the unit is one. So by extension, it's my father and my mother. My parents went to school later in life to get their degrees. I was the first person in my family to go away to college. 
So it wasn't that we sat at the day at the dinner table talking about finance and going to Wall Street where I ended up and those things. He taught me so much in terms of disciplines and work ethic and value. And I realized over the course of my career how those were the most important lessons in terms of being effective. The, the hard skills I could learn in various ways, including some of the stuff in the classroom, but those character traits have to be instilled and built over time. And, and, and most importantly, they have to be modeled. The second person I would say who had a tremendous impact on my career, and, I, and I've been blessed to have some great mentors and sponsors, so it's hard to pick one, but I would say Bill Osborne, who was the CEO at Northern Trust when I joined the firm. I, I had the privilege of working uh, and reporting to him uh, towards the end of his tenure. He gave me a tremendous opportunity to lead corporate strategy. But working with him close up, it wasn't just about the kind of opportunity that he provided to me. And that was significant. But it was about who he was in a person and a leader. You know, sometimes, you know, people have a public persona, but their up close and personal persona is very different. Bill was one of those rare individuals that his personal persona probably was better than the great public persona that he had. The genuine way that he in, in, engaged with me, that he helped me be my best self, that notwithstanding the difference between you know our seniority and roles and different things like that, how he showed that he trusted me and believed in me and helped me be a better professional and leader. What type of investment do you gravitate to like a moth to the flame? I'm one of these folks that I am definitely, I challenge conventions. I'm a non-traditional thinker. So I'm the person, if the market's going this way, I was like, who's running the contrarian fund? It draws me. One of the counterintuitive things in private markets is I have invested a fair amount with emerging managers. Now, the irony is empirically, it says it makes sense. Like on average, even though they have a lot less in the way of assets, they outperform, but it's counter to how people invest. All right. Last one, Chandran. What are your biggest blind spots? So there's this funny thing, you know, I, I don't know if this happens to you when you're driving just right over your left shoulder. No, no. <laughs> I think that's a great question because when you think about the concept of blind spot, it's not something that quote unquote, you're totally blind to. It means it's out of your view or perspective. And what it means is you, you have to adjust, change what would be your comfortable or natural way of doing things to actually have access to that. And for me, I am very wired for efficiency. I'm highly strategic in my orientation. So I'm an abstract thinker. I don't have to connect things in a linear way. And so it allows me to process really quickly. And I'm very efficient because I can get to the 80-20 very quickly. So think of those as like, those are my super strengths. But your strengths always belie your blind spots or weaknesses. And so that means just by my natural orientation, I can potentially miss small but important things. And I'm very conscious of that. I'm conscious of that when I'm building groups or I'm working with teams. I will scan purposely for people who have the opposite temperament of mine, because the opposite temperament tends to naturally be more inclined to more analytical, more sweating of the details. They actually many times need to process things in a very linear way. But by definition, you pick up lots of little things along the way. So that for me is an example of something that I've realized over time. And it's sort of like the blind spot. You got to consciously check it. <laughs> well, Chandran, thanks so much for sharing this new venture. I'm really excited to see the impact you're going to have. I really appreciate your time, Ted. And it's always like a pleasure heard, talking to you. Hop on our website at CapitalAllocators.com where you can access past shows, join our mailing list, and sign up for premium content. Have a good one and see you next time. Thank you.